Good morning, Rolling Hills. How is everybody? Good to see you. And if you're joining us online, uh, welcome. We're glad that you're here with us this morning, too. My name is Rick Tillman, and I am on the teaching team here at Rolling Hills, and um, glad to be with you. Um, it feels kind of cliche-ish to talk about the weather, but I just want to mention the weather. I mean, geez, it's October, you know, and what is it? It's, been, it's amazing. It was like 85. You know, I hope you're all getting out there and doing stuff in it. Um, I, however, was working on my sermon all day. But I ran out several times and just went, yes, yes, enjoying it. Um, I hope, and I know Bill Town is. Bill Town, our lead pastor, is uh, not here this weekend, which is why I'm here. And I know he's off with some guys really enjoying the weather too. So good for him. Well, last week, Bill began a new series for us, uh, Learning to Pray, that we'll be doing through October. And um, this morning, we want to continue that. One day, huge crowds begin to follow Jesus. So he went out and he sat up on the side of a mountainside. And he began to teach them. And he started teaching on all kinds of subjects, uh, talking about the righteous kind of living. Kind of about, it was kingdom ethics, how people are part of God's kingdom, how you should live. And we get to chapter 6 in Matthew. He begins to uh, take up the subject of prayer. And that's where we find the, the well-known uh, prayer, uh, the Lord's Prayer, our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. He gives them this model prayer. See, the Pharisees of that day had kind of reduced um, all of God's commandments into this legalistic list of outward behaviors, paying no attention at all to the moral and ethical implications behind them. And Bill talked last week about how these uh, Pharisees, they love to demonstrate their righteousness. So they would go out and they love to pray. And rather than making it a matter of an individual's heart between them and God, they like to make it a public spectacle where they could demonstrate their righteousness by praying long and loud in the synagogues and on the street corners. And Jesus said, don't pray like that. Pray like this, our Father who art in heaven, and he gives them the prayer. And last week, uh, Bill talked about he began the prayer with an unusual address in the sense that he said, pray like this, uh, our Father in heaven, which blew everybody's mind because this was the first time people were, were instructed to call God their Father, indicating this incredibly intimate and personal relationship that they could have with God. And uh, I encourage you, Bill's got a lot of great information there. You can listen to it online if you want to go back. Uh, it's a great, it deals all about God in heaven and hallowed be thy name. It talks about those topics. And as you get into the Lord's Prayer, it kind of breaks down uh, nicely for us into uh, seven requests. The first three, let your name be hallowed, let your kingdom come, let your will be done. Then he switches to us, Plurally, where he says, pray like this, 
Give us our daily bread, forgive us our debts, lead us not into temptation and deliver us from evil. Bill talked about the first one this morning. We're gonna take the next two that are addressing God specifically. She says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come. Now, I, I've prayed the Lord's Prayer a lot, as I know that many of you have. And sometimes, um, we don't really think about the vast implications of what we're praying for. So when we say, let your kingdom come, what, what is the, the kingdom of God? What exactly is that? So the kingdom of God is really anywhere God is in, author, in authority and he's calling the shots. He's ruling that's God's kingdom, okay? So in one sense, since he made and created the entire universe, he has authority over it all. But his actual kingdom where he's reigning is demonstrated to one extent, greater or lesser, depending on the situation. For instance, the prayer is, let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. How is God's kingdom seen in heaven? Perfectly. Perfectly as, as all creatures, all the angels, and everybody's in perfect submission to him. It's perfectly. Here on earth, you know, not so much. But that's the prayer. Let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. So, it's kind of like this. Most of us don't think that way your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. We think this way. We think of the earth as being a place that is broken indeed, and uh, it's imperfect, a lot of pain, a lot of sorrow, some nice, beautiful things too, but yet a, a broken place. And so that's why we pray when we die, we want to leave earth and go to heaven where things are perfect. There's no more pain or suffering. Leave earth, go to heaven. But that's not what the prayer is. The prayer isn't leave here and go to heaven. The prayer is God let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. That, that's the prayer. And so, as we praise for the kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven, that, that's the way it was in the beginning, by the way, in Genesis. When God created everything at the very beginning, it was perfect. God created the heavens, the earth, and everything around it. The earth was a perfect place with the Garden of Eden, and everything was wonderful. God walked hand in hand with Adam and Eve, and everything was in perfect harmony. That's the way it started out. But then we know what happened. God, in his love for mankind, gave us free moral will. And mankind, in his free moral will, said, God, I'll make my decisions by myself. I don't need you to tell me what to do and what not to do. I'll, I'll call the shots myself. And when that happened, we are, there was a fracture. God said, okay, you want the earth without me? You may have it. 
and there was, there was a, this fracture. And so as man lived on earth without God, we can read in Genesis all that began to happen. We see jealousy and strife and murder and envy and incest, all kinds of sexual immorality and man's inhumanity, man. Sinfulness. Mankind was broken. And so the earth itself was broken with a messed up climate and thorns and thistles, far from the perfection that God had intended it to be. So that's what man got. But even though God gave man space to live on the earth without him, he wasn't through with it. In the Old Testament, we read where God began to reveal himself again to redeem the earth and the people he loved. He uses a man uh, named, called Abraham. We studied about this earlier in the year. Abraham, he, calls, he rises up an entire nation of people called Israel. Okay? And through Israel, he begins to reveal his laws and his commandments so they could actually see how God behaves and how he acts and get a view of God's character. And then through certain promises, we call them covenants, unconditional promises, unconditional covenants, through the Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant, God promised that an everlasting kingdom was coming. An everlasting kingdom. And then through his prophets like Isaiah and other prophets, he promised that a king was coming, a Messiah, God in the flesh, and that king of kings and lord of lords would sit on that throne in that everlasting kingdom forever. Forever. So then, centuries later, when Jesus Christ was born as the Messiah, God amongst us, with us, what did he say? He says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is where? At hand. When he sent his disciples out to spread the good news, he said, uh, go and preach and tell everybody that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Luke says that the kingdom of heaven, records Jesus saying the kingdom of heaven, is amidst you, is among you. So really the story of the Bible is really is God in this fractured heaven and earth moving heaven back on to redeem earth and make it what it was supposed to be when it was first created. And the people in it redeem them and make them who they were supposed to be. That's the plan. So as Jesus began to present himself to people, as people recognize their sin, confess their sin, and put their faith and trust in Jesus, then God began to rule in their hearts again. God's kingdom began to show up and rule in their lives. And they began to experience God's kingdom, and it was demonstrated to those around them. And so Jesus was prepared to be the literal king at that time, but Israel rejected him. So Jesus went to the cross, and when he went to the cross and he died, he took the only thing that stands between us and harmony with God, our sinfulness. He went to the cross, died for the sin, taking the sins of the world upon himself, took him to the grave, and then was resurrected, defeating that sin and leaving it in the grave, so to speak, and made it possible for all of us who put our faith and trust in him to appear before God sinless, 
Now, it doesn't mean we're perfect, but when God looks at us, he sees us as sinless because Jesus took all that sin away from us and died for it. So that made, made way for us to have a more perfect connection with God and a more intimate relationship with him. And as we surrender to him with his spirit inside of us, we demonstrate fully, fully and uh, further his spiritual kingdom in and through our lives as we live out the way God gives us the strength and the power to. And we demonstrate that kingdom. So individually and corporately as a church, with all the other churches all around the world, we reflect the spiritual kingdom because God is ruling in our lives and we're subject to him and we reflect that to the rest of the world. Imperfect as it may be. It's imperfect because even though God has forgiven us our sins based on what Jesus has done, we still are imperfect. We still blow it all the time. And we're always living in total dependence on Christ's forgiveness and recognizing that. But it's imperfect now. But, but the time is coming when we as God's children will perfectly and literally live in a literal kingdom of God with him where God, Jesus, we all reign together in perfect harmony. And that time is coming. So when Jesus says, pray, thy kingdom come, that's what he's talking about. And everything that leads up to that kingdom, everything that leads up to it. So what I want to do quickly this morning is I want to just do a quick overview, kind of a 30,000 foot look at the events that lead up to this ultimate literal kingdom that we're all going to be a part of and all supposed to be praying for. Okay, so let's take a look. Now, uh, my apologies to you Bible students, because this is going to really frustrate you, because there's so much more we could put on this chart. Okay, but we could be here another couple months if we did that. So I'm just going to hit the very highlights. We're not going to read all the scriptures up there, but just to give us an overview that when God, Jesus says, pray thy kingdom come, he's talking about this is it. This is the kingdom that's coming. So just a, a quick review here. The uh, Old Testament prophets, okay, all those prophecies we talked about, that's the Old Testament that foresaw and promised the kingdom and promised the Messiah. Those are in the Old Testament. Get to the New Testament. That's when Jesus, through his death and resurrection, right, he forgives us our sin, and now we are all here in this church age, okay? This is where God's spirit is poured out and dwells the believer. We're called the children of God, and we're given the command to spread the gospel throughout the world, okay? This is the, the uh, great commission. Go and preach and teach, spread the gospel throughout the whole world, make disciples. Um, that's where we are, right here. And that's happening all over the world. All over the world, people are recognizing Jesus is the King of kings, Lord of lords, putting the faith and trust in him, and the church is growing all over the world. That's who we are. The next event to happen is very, very exciting. It's called the rapture. That's the next event. The rapture is when Jesus says, okay, the time has come. He comes and he takes all the believers in the world, all of his church all over the world, he takes them out of the world to be with him. And there's going to be seven years of really bad stuff. Seven years, God begins to pour out judgment on an unbelieving world. 
Okay? And so we go back to our chart. We can see that during this seven years of tribulation, there's three and a half years where the Antichrist comes into power. Antichrist embodies everything against Christ. He's Satan uh, empowered, Satan uh, indwelled, and he is the Antichrist. He comes to power. At first, he establishes great, a perfect, nice rule and peace such as the world hasn't known in a long time. But then he begins to turn on anybody that was a, that's a Christian. He turns on Israel. Uh, God begins to pour out judgments. Uh, all kinds of judgments come out here. In the middle of the three and a half years, it ends up being a time of trouble such as the world has never known. You read through the revelations, it's exhausting. The judgment that God puts down on an unbelieving world. Seven years of really bad tribulation. We, however, as we're raptured, the churches, all of us that have put our faith and trust in Christ, this is the time we go up uh, and we, we stand before the judgment seat of Christ. In 2 Corinthians 5.10, actually. The judgment seat of Christ, called the Bama seat, that's where we all stand and are judged. Not for our sin, because Christ took away our sin. At the Bama seat, the judgment seat of Christ for us is when we're rewarded for how responsible we are with our lives. How we lived here. How responsible we were, what we, how well we obeyed God and followed him and how, to what degree we surrendered everything to him. That's when he will judge us with our lives. And be, each of us, the scripture says, will be rewarded according to what we've done, whether good or bad. Bad is not sin, but the rewards that we could get if we were more responsible with our lives. But there's the judgment seat of Christ happens there. So the next event after seven years of really bad things, harsh judgments on the world, is the second coming of Christ. Christ says, okay, all of this tribulation is done. I am coming to put a final end to it all. And who gets to come with him? You and me. You and me, we get to come with him. These are actual events. First of all, the rapture is an actual event. I skipped over that slide. We've got to go back and read it. Sorry, the rapture is just something that we really want to get a handle on. If we can go back to that. First Thessalonians 4.16, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of, of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. The dead in Christ of all, are all of our friends and family and people that have died, that are with Jesus now in paradise, just like the thief on the cross. Jesus turned to the thief on the cross and said, Today you'll be with me in paradise. So, all of our loved ones that have gone before us are with him. And so that's what the dead in Christ will rise first, meaning their spirits will come down, they will receive a glorified body, they will rise, and then, together with them, in the clouds, all of us will be caught up in the air, so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. That's a huge event. Being raptured, being caught up with him. In the twinkling of an eye, the scripture says, we'll be changed and we'll be caught up with Jesus in the clouds. And that's a promise, just like every other promise in the Old Testament that came to pass, that's gonna come to pass. And the theologians tell us today, everything that was supposed to happen before that event has already happened. One of the biggest ones is when Israel became a nation back in 1948. Nothing else is yet to be fulfilled. So that means the rapture could have at any moment and we may not finish this sermon. 
So that rapture happens. And then after those seven years of tribulation, then Jesus comes again and he brings us with him. So we'll get to experience that coming with Christ. And the battle of Armageddon is when he takes all the unbelieving nations that have rebelled against them and he squashes them. And so he defeats them and he bounds Satan for a thousand years. Okay. So after he binds Satan for a thousand years, that's the battle of Armageddon. Christ's enemies are defeated. Battle of Armageddon. Then we enter into this amazing period of a thousand year millennial reign. And this is going to be an amazing time where Christ himself comes down, establishes his reign on the earth for a thousand years. During this time, all the Old Testament saints that died before putting their faith in God, they will be raised again. Uh, all the, the, uh, the saints that died during the tribulation time. And when the rapture happens, a lot of people are going to go, uh-oh, and begin to put their faith and trust in Christ. And there'll be Christians that are living through that seven years. And that's going to be a rough seven years. And a lot of them will be, uh, a lot of them will be killed and beheaded and a lot of horrible things happen to them. But all those saints that, that, but their faith and trust in Christ in that horrible time will be resurrected at that time. Now, to be honest, a lot of theologians would move some of these lines around a little bit, but most of your evangelical theologians agree all these events are going to happen. They just might disagree a little bit on the timeline, okay? But they'll see that this timeline is actually right. Um, anyway, <laughs> so... During this time, somewhere in this thousand years, they're resurrected. So now everybody's been resurrected. Everybody, God's church, God's believers, the Old Testament saints, New Testament saints, the people that were killed during the tribulation time, all of them are raised with God, okay? And we're living during this thousand year reign. Now, some of the people that lived through the tribulation, they will enter into this, this millennial period. And those people will be mortal, normal people in their natural bodies. And they will marry and they'll have children. And during over a thousand years, their children will have grow and have children. And so there'll be uh, a myriad of different kinds of people living in this amazing time where Jesus is ruling in, in perfect harmony. So God, when we're praying, thy kingdom come, we're talking about all of this stuff. After a thousand years, all of those people that had babies and their children grew and their children grew, Satan is released one more time to lead them astray. And you kind of read through Revelations and you go, oh, come on, you know? But actually, when you get to the end of this, it, God is demonstrating the best we can figure out this the ultimate sinfulness of man left to himself. Left to himself. He will always, even during a reign of Christ himself, he tends to want to do and rebel and do his own thing apart from God. And it's those people, not us, not any of us that have been resurrected, but it's those people that, that Satan will try to uh, deceive and lead away. They, it's quickly put down. God is, uh, quells that whole rebellion. Satan's cast into the lake of fire. And then we have the great white throne judgment. All the other Christians and the saints, all of us have been with Christ and we've been judged and received our rewards. The white throne judgment is for all the rest of the unbelieving nations, the people that said, I don't want you, I don't need you in my life. Or, I don't need you, Jesus, I'm good enough. I'm, God will accept me because my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. Bad deeds. But the scripture's plain. Sin 
separates us permanently for God, from God. If your sin isn't forgiven, then you can't be with God. And Jesus Christ is our God and our Savior who saved us from that sin and forgave it. So, as the people stand before God at the white throne judgment, he looks at their list of great deeds, but then he sees all the sin in their life, and he says, you cannot be with me. And your name is not written in the book of life. The Bible tells us as Christians, the moment you give your life to Jesus Christ and accept him as your God and Savior, your name is written in the book of life. Those whose names are not in the book of life will be separated and join the devil in the lake of fire. Now, that is a very uncomfortable concept for us. I don't even like to think about it for very long. So if you want to say that's metaphorical or whatever it is um, to make you feel more comfortable, the fact of the matter is that wherever a non-believer will be, it's not with God. It's apart from where God is. And where God is is an amazing, wonderful place because then, finally and ultimately, a new heaven and a new earth is established and there will be an eternal state. That is when the earth and heaven become finally one again, just like it was in the very beginning. And we gotta read about that. Where he talks about, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Jesus says, pray, thy kingdom come, this kingdom and all that comes before it. Pray that that begins to happen. Pray for that time when the earth is finally redeemed, it and its people. So when I say that, and when we pray that prayer, I don't know about you, but for a long time, I had no idea thy kingdom come meant all of that. But that's what we're talking about. Now, when exactly those events happen, um, I think Troy knows exactly. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> no, nobody knows when those events are going to happen. You know? And if anybody tells you they do, they're mistaken. Because Jesus, Jesus himself plainly said that no man knows. No man knows concerning that day. No one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. That is in God's sovereign knowledge. He alone knows that. We know the events are going to happen, but we just don't know when or where or how. But God knows, and that's a part of his sovereign will, which leads us to the Final part of that verse 10. Thy kingdom come, all that we just talked about, thy will be done. Now, when we think about God's will, it's helpful to, be, to think of it in about in three different ways. There is God's sovereign will, his moral will, and his individual will. So let's talk about his sovereign will. Again, to say God is sovereign, I mean, he's the, he is the authority over all things. Okay? 
He is, he is over all, everything that there is, and he causes or allows everything to happen. He is sovereign. It's secret because we don't know about it until it happens. Because God, it means God and his authority is working through in, in, in the, all the affairs of mankind. He's working through those according to his purposes and his will, and we don't always know what those are, okay? It's a secret plan, and it determines everything that happens in the universe. Jesus said not even a sparrow hits the ground that God doesn't know about. He's in charge of it all. If it happened, it's because God either directed it to happen or allowed it to happen. And that's kind of an uncomfortable thought for a lot of us. God allowed it to happen. That's called his permissive will. He doesn't want it to happen, but he allows it to happen. And if you're going through a really tough time this morning, or you've lost a loved one, or you're struggling in your health in a lot of tough times, it's easy to say, God, why? If you're a loving, kind God, why would you allow this to happen? Well, just because God allows it doesn't mean he wants it to happen. Remember, we live in a world that said to God, we don't want you. We want to make our own decisions. We live in a broken, fallen world without God's sovereignly ruling over it. And so God allows us to live in this world until he brings the new world that we're going to be a part of and that he promises. But as he allows certain things to happen, when God gave us free will, when somebody uses their free will to do something bad, then good people can get hurt. Sometimes God intervenes. He's powerful. He can do what he wants to. And a lot of times he miraculously redeems people, redact, redact, radically changes people. He heals them. He restores them. He protects them. And other times he does not, according to his purposes and his plan. But it doesn't mean he doesn't care. Doesn't mean he doesn't care. I love the part when, when Jesus raised Lazarus. Moments before he raised Lazarus, knowing he was going to bring him back to life again, he looked around and he saw people crying, and the scripture says that he cried too. He cried too. He's a God of compassion and mercy. And it's like when you're, you have a child that's sick and hurting, man, it crushes your heart. But you know that that child's going to be well, and you're going to take care of it. And God knows what he's going to do for us. He will right every wrong and restore us to a place of health and give us a body that we never dreamed possible. He's going to change it. He's going to make it right. So he's a God of compassion. But that's God's sovereign will. We don't always understand his sovereign will. We don't know what it is. But we trust that we have an all-powerful, loving God who's going to make it right. And right now, as we look at what's going on with Israel over this weekend, Israel being attacked and, and in the midst of war. This is Israel that God made all these wonderful promises to. We know that God is going to protect and take care of Israel, but it doesn't mean that they're going to suffer and hurt during it. And we need to pray for them. But God is sovereignly in control of all the affairs of man, working things together for his purposes. I love uh, Psalm 21 where it says, the king's hearts are in the hand of God like water. He turns them whichever way he wants. He's in charge, even though we don't know it or understand it. 
But what we can know is God's moral will. God's moral will is everything that God has revealed to us in the scripture about how to live righteously. It teaches, teaches how we ought to believe and how we ought to live. For instance, 10 commandments. Don't lie, cheat, steal, kill, you know, don't covet. Uh, you get the New Testament, all the Ten Commandments are even expounded. Uh, simple things like um, first, uh, Ephesians 5.18, don't get drunk with wine. That's dissipation and debauchery, and you do all kinds of dumb things when you get drunk. doesn't say don't drink. It says don't get drunk, okay? Big difference. Uh, we're supposed to love, and you could just, we could fill out so many scriptures under these columns. Love one another. Consider others more important than yourself. Help the needy, you know, take care of the widows. Love your neighbor as yourself. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, pray for your enemies. All that is righteous kind of living. In God's moral will, we can know because it's right there in the scripture. Now, when we pray, your will be done, and God shows us plainly what that will is, it makes no sense to go out and live exactly opposite of it. And yet sometimes we do. We know God's moral will, and it is for everyone. We all live with that. And it's our job is depending on the Holy Spirit in, inside us to give us the strength and the power to resist temptation and live according to God's righteousness. And by doing so, we demonstrate the righteousness of God, his rule in our life, and we mirror, however imperfectly, the kingdom of God what it looks like. And so I have to ask myself, is God ruling in my life? Is God, is God living through me? Am I demonstrating his righteousness at home with my wife, with my kids, with my neighbors and at work and the way I run my business? Is God ruling over that? Am I making decisions that are in line with his moral will? Because his moral will is there for us to know. How am I behaving with my friends? How am I behaving with my boyfriend? How am I behaving with my girlfriend? These are questions we need to ask. If we're going to pray, thy will be done, we have to go out and live it. We are called to live in a manner worthy of our calling. There's a great story about Alexander the Great. At the height of his conquest, they brought him a young man who was on the front lines who, out of fear, jumped up and ran. An act of cowardice that was punishable by death. And as they stood this young guy, this young kid in front of Alexander the Great, in a rare moment of compassion, Alexander pardoned him and sent him back to the front lines to prove himself. But as he was leaving, he said, what's your name? There was a pause. Alexander. What? Alexander, sir. You have a great name, son. Live up to it. We're to live in a manner worthy of our calling 
as children of God. The final thing I want to mention is God's individual will. Okay, he's a sovereign will that we don't always know, who we trust, a moral will that we can plainly know and make our decisions accordingly. And then there's an individual will. And, and just very quickly as we close today, God's individual will is basically, uh, we are not all the same. And God has a plan for all of us. And you, as you read through the Old Testament, the scripture, we see God took a shepherd boy and made him king of Israel. He took Rahab, a Canaanite um, harlot, prostitute who saved the life of two Israel soldiers. And then we find her name mentioned in the Hall of Fame for Heroes. Yeah. Great, small people from all walks of life, God uses. He took Paul, who was killing Christians, saved him, had him spread the gospel, and he wrote most of the New Testament. I love what, King, what uh, David said in Psalm 139. He said, uh, as he described him being fashioned in his mother's womb. And then he said, all the days ordained for me were written in your book, God, before yet one of them happened. All the days of my life were written in your book before one of them happened. God has a plan for us. And it's not the same for everybody. His moral will, same for everybody. But the things God has for us to do is based on who he made us individually. And sometimes in the church, we make the mistake of trying to make us all behave and act the same with the same kind of gifts. All of us should be doing this. All of us, maybe not. We're all individuals. Okay. We're all different strengths and witnesses. And it's important that we're responsible for what God has given us. Now, I love uh, Romans 12. I want to just read that really quick. For as in one body, we have many members and the members do not have all the same function. We have different gifts that differ according to the grace given each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it's serving, then serve. If it's teaching, then teach. If it's to encourage, then give encouragement. If it's giving, then give generously. If it's to lead, then do it diligently. If it's to show mercy, do it cheerfully. All Christians, all members of one body of Christ, so to speak, but we all have different functions. We're built differently. And, it, it, and when we say, thy will be done, when you say, God, your will in my life, according to who you've made me and the strengths and gifts you've given me, what do you want me to do with it? Because it's not the same as everybody else's. It may be as simple as walking across the street and encouraging your neighbor. Maybe you share your faith with somebody. Maybe you help somebody in need. Maybe you share the gospel. I mean, it, it depends on how God's made you and what he's asking you to do. The question is, are you asking him what does he want you to do? Are we careening through life, paying no attention to what his will might be for my individual life? How do you want me to run my business? Asking God individually. God has things for us to do. Make no mistake. There's a great example. Very close friend of mine, um, my son-in-law actually <laughs> said, uh, was telling me of a time in church. He was in church and uh, there was a, a lot of visitors there that day and he looked over and he saw this one guy and he just felt like he needed to go and, and talk with him and share with him. 
And he just really felt that strongly that he should do that. But then he thought, you know, I got this going on, this going on, and I got this, and I just don't have time and all that stuff. So he didn't. But then a little bit later, 30 minutes later or so, uh, he looked down there and one of the, the other guys was coming and sitting next to him. One of the other members, of the, a friend of his, members of the church, was sitting next to him. And this guy he was talking to was just almost to the point of tears. And he actually prayed to receive Christ with him. And uh, my son-in-law said, I just, I felt horrible. Because I feel like that was something God wanted me to do that day. And I was too busy. And God said, okay, fine. Because God's going to do what God's going to do. Is he going to use us or is he going to use somebody else? You know, that's what we need to ask. And that's what we need to be sensitive to. Father, your we pray your glorious, literal, fantastic kingdom where there is no pain or suffering. Let your kingdom come and all that leads up to it. Let it come, Lord. Let it come. Lord, let your will be done. Your sovereign will that I don't always understand and I may struggle with, but let whatever sovereign will you have, let it come. Let it happen, Father. Your moral will. Let me live out the kind of righteousness you've shown me so that I can demonstrate to the world what you look like. Let your moral will be done and let it be done individually in my life. The things that you want me to do. Lord, don't let me miss it. Help me to do it. Let it come. And all God's people said, Amen. 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 We're going to um, continue the service this morning and we're going to have a time of communion. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And um, as we do, I just want to share you one more phenomenal example of uh, asking for God's will and then obeying it. See, those, those are the two parts. God, show me your will. And the other part is, once he shows us, we need to do it. The supreme example of that was Jesus Christ himself who in the Garden of Gethsemane knelt, sweating great drops of blood and trembling, fearing the physical, his human side, feared the physical pain and torture that lay before him. And that's when he prayed, God, let this cup pass from me. If at all possible, let this, if there's any other way, let me not have to go through this. Nevertheless, not my will, yours. And then he got up and went to the cross because that was God's will. He gave his life, beaten, spat on, suffered, broken body, shed blood for me, for you. So that we could have a relationship with God and enjoy all the things we've talked about this morning. So let's take a few minutes uh, as we continue in our worship. Uh, when you're ready, feel free to come forward, take the elements, the bread, the wine, uh, and think about that. And as we do, I want to make one more quick prayer. If you are here this morning or at home and you say, I don't know that I'm going to be a part of any of that. 
but I want to be. It's as simple as recognizing God's, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Recognizing that Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, died for your sins so you could have a relationship with God, and you just tell him that. And you surrender your life so that he can reign by his spirit in you and you become a child of God. And I'm going to say a quick prayer along those lines. If you have that feeling at all and you want to do that, uh, just pray along with me, okay? Heavenly Father, I, I want to be your child. I want to be a part of the kingdom away from this broken world. I want to hear your voice and have your guidance, and I want to be your child. So I acknowledge you, Jesus Christ, that you are God's son, God in the flesh, King of kings, Lord of lords. And I want to put all my faith and trust in the fact that you died for me on the cross for my sins. And based on that, my sins and my brokenness, past, present, and future are all forgiven, wiped away and taken out of the way. And I'm going to trust in your forgiveness for my sins the rest of my life and that you are my God. And when you come back, in the rapture, or when I die before the rapture, I'll be with you according to your promise, Father. I give you my life now. Come and reign in it. In Jesus' name, amen. Take your elements as you so fit.